Hello everyone and welcome to episode 94 of the Unlocking British English podcast, a podcast where I talk about a variety of different topics in real British English so that you can improve your listening comprehension, learn a little bit more about British culture and about how to learn languages more effectively. My name is Shane and in today's episode we're going to go through a few more fun facts about the UK, some of which you might already know but a few of them I'm sure you won't have heard of and all of them are quite interesting. Interesting, uh, with a little bit of a story or whatever behind them, well for some of them at least. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about a few more fun facts about the UK and you can test your knowledge. Uh, before we jump into the full episode, just a quick reminder, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to try and improve your English speaking skills, if you would like to be able to speak English with more confidence, with more fluidity, just to feel better about your ability to communicate in English, then I've designed a brand new course specifically for you uh, based on the important principles of speaking a language better that I talked about in the last episode. If you want to go and check that out, you can as well. But I've launched a brand new course called the British English Booster Course, which has been designed specifically to help improve your confidence in, um, in expressing yourself and communicating in real British English so that you can sound a little bit more natural and a little bit more confident while you're speaking. If you're interested in that, then I have a few limited spaces to be able to take th people through this course in person. So you'll actually go through all of the content, all of the lessons with me, uh, over 21 days worth of content, over 21 classes of content, um, and all, yeah, all with me in person. And so if you're interested in that, or if you're just interested in finding out about how I might be able to help you improve your English speaking or how you can help yourself to be able to improve your English speaking. I'm currently offering free, without charge, 30-minute uh, strategy sessions, so 30 minutes where we can sit down and talk about your goals, talk about where you're at with your English currently and where you want to be where and, and how we can help you, uh, how we can help get you there. So if you're interested in sitting and talking with me for 30 minutes about your English goals and to see if there are uh, any options for you for joining this course or if there are other things that maybe might be beneficial for you, again, it's 30 minutes, it's completely free. So there's a link to do that in the description wherever you are listening to this episode. So click on the link, the calendar link, and you'll be able to book a 30-minute slot for free. Uh, and we can sit and chat about how to improve your English speaking. So yeah, uh, and as always, if you haven't already joined our free private learners group, again, there's a, a link in the description. Come hang out with us, chat about your English learning, ask questions, and yeah, hang out with other people who are also listening to this podcast to improve their English. So yeah, without all... Out, sorry, with that all out of the way, let's get into a few fun facts about the UK. So we'll start with one that is, well, it's quite obvious in some senses, but the exact numbers, the exact digits are probably going to be a little bit surprising. So, of course, all of us know that tea is by far one of the most famous and popular drinks among British people. But did you know that it's estimated that we, the British people, drink over 150 million cups of tea every day? Not every week, not every month, not even every year. 150 million cups of tea every day. Day. Now it is an estimate because, of course, we can't measure everyone. But they've, they, you know, they've done tests to to you know measure uh, x amount of people's average intake, and you know this is. 
this was surprising even for me. I think, you know, I know a lot of British people drink a lot of tea, but 150 million cups every day just seems to be a, 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 a crazy amount. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people that will drink multiple cups of tea a day. Um, I used to drink a lot of tea personally. I now don't drink as much. I prefer to have a coffee in the morning and then maybe I might have a cup of tea like in the afternoon, but that's definitely not every day. That might be like once a week, something like that. So, but you know, loads of people will will quite commonly drink three or four cups of tea per day. Uh, and I guess it's a little bit different because if you're drinking a lot of cups of coffee every day, then there are slight, there are some more direct health issues that can come from that, right? It can be um, uh, a little bit worse for your health, whereas tea, because it doesn't have quite as much caffeine in it per cup, uh, maybe it's it's not quite as, doesn't have quite as much of a negative effect, let's say. But yeah, British people love tea, but I bet you didn't know that we loved it so much we drink 150 million cups of it every day. So that is the first fun fact. Um, and another, well, just another little note for that, that um, obviously the UK is much, much smaller than the United States. Uh, but the in America, in the United States of America, they drink 20 times less tea than we do. So um, just to, just so you can understand the difference between like population size and consumption. We are drinking a lot of tea and we're drinking it every day. So yeah, that is the, uh, the first little fun fact for today. 150 million cups of tea. That's a lot. Um, okay, so the second little fact that we've got for today um, is about London. So London, of course, houses millions of people, over 8 million citizens who live in uh, in and around the main areas of London. Uh, but what I'm sure some of you didn't realise is that it's estimated that more than 300 languages are spoken in London every day. Okay, so uh, we're not just talking about some of the more obvious European languages, right? It's not just Spanish, Italian, Polish. We're, we're talking about all kinds of different languages. Um, sometimes this comes down to the fact that there are different dialects. For example, there are a lot of people that live in the UK that have family uh, from India, and there's a lot of different dialects within India, lots of different variations of the language uh, and different languages languages and things like that and so um, sometimes it's a case of maybe there's sort of one language but there's lots of different dialects other times there's just lots of different languages uh, but it is it's known that there are hundreds of languages spoken but the 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 closest official estimate says that there are more than 300 languages that will be spoken routinely in London so this is not just maybe someone came and visited for a month and they were from a different country so we counted that language we're talking about languages that are being spoken every day in London so if you're planning on visiting London and you're not really so sure about your English don't worry because you'll probably be able to find someone who speaks your native language somewhere because there are loads of people in London and they're all speaking all kinds of different languages so um, yeah over 300 languages spoken in London quite interesting um, so that is the second little fun fact for today moving on to the next is moving on to the monument of Stonehenge so uh, I'm sure you've all heard of Stonehenge 
And Stonehenge is actually claimed to be one of the oldest monuments in the world. So we don't know that much about Stonehenge. There are a lot of questions still to be answered about Stonehenge, exactly what it is, exactly how it was built, where these stones come from. Um, there's a lot of things that we're not 100% sure. There are little different theories and things like that. But scientists are fairly confident that they know roughly when this was built and constructed. And so the belief is that it was built 3,000 years before Common Era. So 3,000 in the year 3000 BC, or now in modern times we say BCE because um, originally BC would have meant before Christ. We say the year zero as in before Christ when Jesus was supposedly doing his thing um, but yeah in, in, in modern terms we, we prefer to say BCE which stands for before common era right rather than before Christ because obviously large parts of the world don't believe in Jesus Christ and don't follow Christianity and things like that. So anyway, um, about about five thousand years ago is the short version. So Stonehenge is is claimed at least to be one of the oldest monuments in the world, being about five thousand years old. Uh, and yeah, we still don't know so much about it. Um, it's a very popular place to visit. Uh, Stonehenge actually isn't that far from where I live right now. I live in Southampton and uh, you can find Stonehenge just outside of Salisbury. Probably take me about an hour to get to Stonehenge. Uh, I have seen it. Uh, I haven't been to visit the like official bit, but you can drive you can drive past it and you can see it very clearly. Um, and I guess the only thing I would say is that if you plan to go to Stonehenge to visit it, you know, do do the tour and do things, but maybe find some other stuff to look at as well. Because I think, to be honest, it's one of those things that maybe it's a little bit underwhelming sometimes when you actually see it. Because when you see the pictures, you hear the stories, the history or whatever, it's, it's this big mystery and it's quite cool. But, you know, in reality is that once you've seen it and you look at it and you go, wow, that's impressive there's not that much else to see or do, right? So once you've seen it, you've taken your pictures or whatever, you've got your little video, yeah, you might you might end up be feeling a little bit like, okay, what now? So uh, yeah, if you do plan on visit, visiting Stonehenge, which I'm not saying you shouldn't, uh, try, and, try and book some other stuff to do on that day as well, because it might not take that much time. But anyway, uh, yeah, Stonehenge, one of the oldest monuments in the world, about 5,000 years old, sitting uh, in the south of England. So yeah, third fun fact for today, 5,000 year old stones. <laughs> um, okay, so moving on. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Queen and some of the exceptions that she has um, because of the situation with the Crown and things. I think we talked about the law, some of the laws in the UK, um, and we talked in that episode about how the Queen technically is above the law. Because the law is actually carried out in her name, it would be kind of difficult to actually like arrest her for something because she's technically above the law now i don't know how that would actually work in the real world like if she you know went and did some bad crime i'm sure she would actually be tried and 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 stuff for it but it would be messy because it wouldn't be clear how that would work but um 
there's another part of the kind of standard British or standard life that the Queen doesn't really have to adhere to, um, and that is to do with passports. So, of course, we all have passports to be able to identify ourselves and travel in and out of countries, um, and British passports, again, are issued in the Queen's name. And because of that, she doesn't actually need to have one. So, um, I didn't actually check if she does have one. Um, I imagine that her face is quite recognisable, um, but I imagine that it would probably be easier for her to just have one. But she doesn't need to have one. So she can travel wherever she wants, technically, and she doesn't need to have uh, a passport. Now, again, I don't know how that would work if she, you know, flew to another country and people didn't believe it was her. Would you know, what would happen? I don't really know. But anyway, um, she doesn't have to have a British passport um, because all of the British passports are issued in her name. So, uh, yeah, it's a fun, another fun, weird little fact that the, the Queen likely doesn't have a British passport because she doesn't need one. Um, so, yeah, a random little fun fact about passports there for you. But staying on the theme of passports, this second one is a lot weirder. Um, the Queen does not have to have a passport. But all of the horses in the UK do. I'll repeat that just in case you think you're going a little bit crazy or you think that maybe you misheard me. The Queen does not have to have a passport. That bit we've got right. But all horses in the UK must possess a passport. Now, this sounds really weird and it is kind of weird, but I guess there are a lot of, you know, uh, reasonable ideas behind it. So, um,. In large part, this is about being able to track and trace uh, where horses have come from and where they've gone. Um, and, and in large part, it's specifically actually to do with the use of horse meat in, in human food. Um, so there, there was a bit of a... Um, I don't know. We had a, we had a bit of a... How do we, I don't know what word I'm looking for. Well, there was there was like a report a little while ago, maybe it might have been a couple of years ago now, about some supermarkets using bits of horse meat in their um, like in microwave meals and in cheap meals and and, and pre-prepared meat stuff and things like that. Um, something that we found out was actually quite common practice, but because we didn't know about it here in the UK, people were um, people were up in arms about it. People were very unhappy about it. Very, uh, they felt very angered and offended that they were eating things that they weren't being informed of, and this, that, and the other. Um, and basically, yeah, the, in the UK, horses have to have a passport in part because of the EU regulations on horse meat and human consumption and things like that. Uh, you have to be able to trace where a horse has come from and where it's been and and what kind of things it's gone through and all of that. But some of it's just about, you know, general ownership and things like that. It's not uncommon in the UK for for animals to have, you know, official modes of identification. You know, if you have a dog or a cat, which are the most common pets for people in the UK, you'll usually have a microchip in your dog or your cat. Um, this isn't like a tracking chip, right? It's just like a it's like a little chip of information and it's basically like a digital tag right so instead of having a tag around around the collar of your around your dog's collar around its neck for example that says uh, your dog's name and its address and its phone number it's like having that information on a digital chip so um, you know if, if, if someone finds a stray dog a dog without an owner they can take it to a, to the local vet 
the vet will be able to scan it basically and will be able to say okay this dog is owned by this person that lives here uh, this is their contact number and it's a similar thing with with the horses but it's a little bit more complicated I guess because lots of stuff happens with horses between the breeding between the racing um, and then anything to do with the yeah, regulations of, of eating and things like that uh, of meat consumption and things like that there's lots of strict rules about the tracking of horses so it is a legal requirement for all horses in the UK to possess a passport uh, it doesn't matter if you if it lives in the stable it lives in the garden it never leaves that area it doesn't matter what type of horse you have it has to have a passport so yeah there's a little fact that I'm almost a hundred percent sure you did not know about the UK to brighten up your Monday or whenever you happen to be listening to this episode so yeah horses in the UK need to have a passport so bear that in mind the next time you're traveling to the UK with your horse <laughs> um, okay so moving on to the next little fact um, well I mentioned I mentioned about the UK in general having a lot of people from India living here or, or of, of Indian heritage uh, and because of our history with India and with the Empire and things a lot of storied history that deserves its own episode but because of that uh, the UK has developed a certain love for for Indian food or for Indian style food and 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 Indian style restaurants and things like that um, to the point that there are actually more Indian restaurants in London than there are in the urban centers of India like New Delhi or Mumbai so in London there are more Indian restaurants than there are in New Delhi or Mumbai um, that's pretty crazy to think that there are more Indian restaurants in London than there are in these big urban areas in India um, again th this whole subject this whole topic deserves its uh, its own episode because there's a lot to kind of go through understanding the history um, and the relationship between these kind of two countries and things and, and how that relates to uh, the food culture and stuff like that uh, but it's actually the case you know I said Indian style food because the British we we have kind of invented a, a few dishes that um, people consider to be Indian but Indians never eat like if you go to India you don't see them making those they were they were created in the UK uh, for British people just using typically Indian spices and different things like that the chicken tikka masala is the famous example chicken tikka masala is a is a a meal that most people would attribute as being Indian but it's not it was made by us we used food that we stole from India to make it but you know if you go to India you don't commonly see chicken tikka masala being made in 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 um, yeah in the restaurants and different things or you know wherever people are eating uh, at least to my understanding if anyone wants to correct me on that if any, any of our Indian followers want to correct me on that uh, please feel free to send me a message but um, yeah it's estimated at least that there are more Indian restaurants in London than there are uh, in central places like New Delhi or Mumbai. Pretty crazy and definitely a fact that I didn't know. So um, yeah, British people love Indian style food. Um, staying on theme with London for our for our next little fact of the day. Um, another thing that London is very famous for is its taxis and its taxi drivers. Uh, you know the famous black cab in London um, and. To become a taxi driver in London is a very difficult task to do. Um, taxi drivers in London, they actually have to undergo a test before they get hired to 
to estimate how well they know the streets of London. Now, there are two versions of this test, um, but in general the test is called the Knowledge of London. Uh, it was introduced in 1865 and it's generally thought of as the world's most difficult taxi test. Now again there are two versions of this because there are what there's one version that you can take which will allow you to drive your taxi in all of central London, any area, any borough, any part of London. There's another, a shorter and smaller version that would only allow you to drive your taxi in one specific area, one specific part okay um, but typically speaking uh, it's if you when you especially when you do the um, the full London taxi uh, qualification or whatever it's called um, on average it takes people two to three years to prepare for this test okay two to three years now what we've got to remember is that this test, of course, initially, when it was brought in in 1865, we, of course, we definitely had didn't have sat-navs and mobile phones and things like that. Now, people did have maps, but what we didn't need was to have taxi drivers driving up one road, looking at the map, deciding what the route was, then driving a little bit more, checking the map again, right, stopping and starting. You know, in London, you can get a taxi from anywhere to anywhere else. And so we needed for people to be able to know how to actually do that. But of course, London is a very big and very complicated city. There are a lot of roads, there are a lot of different areas, a lot of places where we have a lot of one-way roads, right, where you can go one direction, but you can't go the other direction, so you have to know um, how to avoid those different parts of the city. Um, you have to know how to avoid traffic in different parts and in certain areas. Um, and so, yeah, this is a test that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, uh, and on average, it will take people around about three years to prepare for. Now, um, I don't know you know, what will happen in the future with that, with things like Uber and stuff like that, because I know that now, you know, the average Uber driver in my city, at least in Southampton, they don't necessarily know the city that well, and usually they will, they'll be following their sat-nav, and it's not that uncommon for a taxi driver to ask you what you think the best route is. Shall we go through town or over the bridge? Now, to me personally, I find that really annoying because when I get in a taxi, I assume that you know how to get me to where I'm going because that's just kind of, that's been the standard, you know, all the time. If you're a taxi driver, you have to know the city because that's the point. But now when we have, you know, Uber and sat-navs and things like that, there are taxi companies that just rely on sat-nav and, and so... Um, yeah, I mean, of course, it makes the whole th it makes the job more accessible. More people can be taxi drivers because you don't have to study for three years and memorize maps of London uh, or whatever city you're in. But it does also mean that the quality of you know taxi drivers does go down. So um, yeah, um, black cabs and and the whole London taxi scene again is probably another topic that we could do an, a whole episode on, and I'll probably do a whole episode on that in the future. Um, but yeah, I think it's a tough time for those guys because it's you know it's hard to compete with the prices of uber and stuff now as well and but anyway uh to be a london taxi driver you have to go through a very rigorous and in-depth knowledge test of all the roads and routes throughout london and it usually take about two or three years to prepare so bear that in mind if you're thinking about becoming a, a black cab driver in in london um okay so we've got two more little facts for today so uh the next fact for today 
uh, is actually to do with World War II and World War II propaganda. Uh, again, World War II, of course, huge subject. We can do a whole episode on that in the future. But the little fact that I've got for you today is that during World War II, British soldiers were told, well, and the British public in general, British soldiers and British public, uh, were told that eating carrots would improve their night vision, right? Would improve their ability to see in the dark. Now, this is an idea that I grew up thinking was true. When I was young, my mum would tell me all the time, eat your carrots, it will help you see in the dark. Um, I don't know if she believed that or if she was just, you know, uh, trying to get me to eat my vegetables. Um, but this is something that a lot of people do actually still believe. We believe that eating carrots will um, will help you see in the dark better. Now, it's not a completely stupid thing because carrots actually they have a vitamin that is good for eye health so they have vitamins that will improve the health of your eyes but what they don't do is directly make you able to see better in the dark so where did this idea come from well it was actually propaganda designed by the ministry of defense by the you know by the the, the military um and the idea was to avoid the enemies knowing about new technology or slightly new technology that we had. So what was happening was we had the Air Force, um, you know, the, people, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, um, and during World War Two we had the Blitzkrieg where um, the Germans were, were coming were coming over and bombing uh, London and major cities, and usually they would do that at night time, um, so it would be kind of harder. For people to see them, harder for for our air force to be able to to fight back, to attack them, and things like that. Um, and so this is where the blackouts came from. If you research things about World War Two in in the UK, in London, there were lots of blackouts where we had to have the lights off all the time. And this was because the Germans were trying to bomb uh, at night. So if we turned all the lights off, they couldn't really see what they were bombing. Anyway. Not long before the start of World War II, people had started to develop more kind of radar technology for for aeroplanes, right? So technology that would allow people to be able to identify where planes were without you having to see them visually, right? So it would come up as a little dot on the screen and you'd see it coming closer, just like you have on ships and things like that. But we didn't want the enemy to know that we had that technology and that we were using that technology and so we started these propaganda campaigns we start we had these posters and different things that said you know buy carrots eat more carrots they'll help you see in the dark um our the this is what's helping our soldiers to defeat the enemy you know support our soldiers you know be like our be like our soldiers and all this kind of stuff um, and yeah, the, the idea was that it would kind of mislead the Germans into thinking that, um, you know, we were, we, were being, we were able to defend ourselves against them in the dark because we were eating lots of carrots. Um, it's not clear how much they actually believed that. Um, but it is clear that this idea of of carrots improving uh, your sight at night time has become a bit of a, a common myth. It's something that we have a lot here in the UK, and I know in other European countries as well. It's it's picked up a little bit. I don't know how far it spreads, so it'll be interesting to hear from some of you guys if you've ever heard of that uh, of that myth. Let me know. Um, but yeah, we had we had this kind of propaganda. Um, there was there were two characters actually that were created uh, one called Potato Pete who was obviously a potato 
Doctor who had a little top hat and a monocle, um, and there was Doctor Carrot who it was a doctor obviously wearing this little suit um and they were like they were characters that you would see on posters in wartime and again they were trying to convince people to uh, to eat more vegetables and things like that um part of this was also to do with um, there was a big push during this time for us to start to grow our own vegetables so that we didn't have to um you know, rely on sending so much food out or, or shipping food into the UK. You know, if we could be more self-sufficient, then that would help us to focus uh, our money and energy on other things to do with the war effort and stuff. But anyway, um, World War Two British propaganda is the reason that many people today believe that eating carrots will improve their vision in the dark. So, um, yeah, don't know if you knew that, but yeah, if you want to go and check out little pictures, you can see, um, you know, there were people would say, carrot on a stick um, as like a, a treat for kids I don't know how popular that was but anyway that was like uh, yeah part of our war propaganda so yeah anyway finally the uh, ninth and final little fact for today um, is actually to do with English speakers because of course you know, England, uh, the United Kingdom has a lot of English speakers naturally uh, we know that it's not the country with the most English speakers because um, native English speakers because of course we have you know the United States is a much bigger country uh, but did you know that there are several countries including India Pakistan Nigeria and the Philippines that have more uh, English speakers than the United Kingdom okay so not all of those are are sorry native speakers that were born speaking it but they're all speakers of the language, fluent speakers of the language that can use it functionally, that use it regularly. Um, so yeah, India, Pakistan, Nigeria and the Philippines, all countries that have many more uh, British, uh, sorry, English speakers than we he have here in the United Kingdom uh, in Britain. So um, yeah, this is something that we have mentioned before that, you know, that English is a global language that's spread throughout the world for multiple reasons. And, you know, this is one of the reasons that I say to people that you you know you shouldn't worry so much about the ideas of pronunciation and accent and stuff in English because there are so many versions of English that are you know that they're, they're 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 normal natural English now they're, they're people that have been you know born and raised speaking this way of English and and you know it's it's as natural to them as as speaking other languages uh, and that's just kind of the the way of the world so you know don't obsess about having perfect british english if that's you know not a goal that you that you want for yourself for any good reason because most of the english speakers in the world speak with some kind of accent or some kind of alternate alternative pronunciation so um yeah many countries around the world that have more uh, English speakers than the United Kingdom and that is our final fact for today so yeah I think that is everything that I wanted to talk about in today's episode I think I've rambled on for a little bit longer than usual in today's episode so I'll leave it there for now but uh, yeah as always if you have any questions or thoughts about anything please feel free to get in touch you can either contact on uh, sorry you can either contact me in the private learners group which you can join for free click the link in the description below uh, sorry in the description wherever you're listening to this episode uh, otherwise you can contact me on instagram at unlocking british english so yeah thank you very much for listening i hope you've enjoyed today's episode and i look forward to speaking to you again in the next one